This is Kevin Evans with the Crossroads Assembly of God Church Life Class, chapter by chapter. We are in Mark chapter 9, and um, we're reaching a point where Christ has, has gotten to where he has kind of fulfilled his mission as far as educating his disciples. He's finishing that up. He has reached the people of Galilee. He's been preaching to enormous crowds. And it's coming to the point where he's going to turn around and start walking toward Jerusalem, where he knows that he will ultimately be killed. And after each one of the miracles that we have read about in Mark in the previous chapters, Christ has told the person that he just performed the miracle for, don't tell anybody. Go home and have the priest look at you, but don't, don't tell anybody. And the point is he's trying to control the hysteria in the people that are following him around. If he goes out to the lake, there'll be 3,000 people waiting for him with people wanting him to perform miracles. Uh, they're all getting their healings. And there were lots of different kinds of ailments and diseases that were common in the Middle East. People didn't live to be very long. Everybody was sick. And if you knew somebody was sick, that, 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 you know, if you weren't sick, then you knew people that were. And so th th this was a huge point of hope for them. And it, was, it, it had gotten enormous because he was, he was healing people. Uh, so, but now he's, he's reaching this point in his ministry where his disciples are starting to understand who he is and what it's all about. And he's kind of transitioning the message. He's not just preaching repentance and, you know, uh, uh, and, and, and purifying your, your spirit. Now he's going to start talking about his, his redemption and, and, and as he comes into Jerusalem and as he faces his own crucifixion. And he's trying to make his disciples understand that. So uh, at the risk of being mildly sacrilegious, I kind of characterize this chapter the end game in the Bible. This is kind of what happens, you know, the Marvel version of this is where it all wraps up. You know, this is, this is the beginning of that. So um, here we go, chapter 9. Now, the first verse in chapter 9 is kind of a wrap-up of the previous lecture that he just gave his disciples in chapter 8. Uh, it, I think it's kind of an awkward chapter break there, but it's because that last verse is kind of profound. And he said to them, I tell you the truth, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God come with power. What does that mean, Lester? Some of you will not taste death before you see the Son of God come in power. He was talking to people there. He was talking to his disciples. Now, when I was in high school, I loved this verse because 
pop culture has tacked into this verse and interpreted it in all kinds of wild ways. And it goes back for hundreds of years. There is a tradition called the wandering Jew, which is basically one of these people is one of the hearers of Christ was standing there and, and, and Christ wanted him to be a witness. So he gave him limited immortality so that he would live 2000 years and be here on earth when Christ comes back. And so you have this 2000 year old Jew that's been wandering around from country to country doing whatever the science fiction story that you're reading wants it to work. <laughs> It's, a, it, it, it's, a, it's an established, iconic science fiction character that is all over comics and it's all over science fiction novels. And for all of you people listening to this in the recording, I am obviously a nerd and I apologize. <coughs> and I just like the idea of there being this guy that's 2,000 years old somewhere that I could go, you know, Ask about the Romans, because he was there. Uh, that's not what this means. It's, it's too broad of an interpretation. Uh, if you look at that and say the Son of God coming in power, he's not referring to the end times and uh, the millennial reign. He's not referring to the second coming. What is he referring to? Well, it could be one of two things. He's either referring to his resurrection, because that would be Christ being transfigured and coming back, and you see him in his spiritual body. That's Christ coming back in power. And if that's the case, everybody standing there saw that, because that happens within this, the year of him saying that. Or it's the coming of the Holy Spirit, which happened you know, a few months after that, weeks after that. Uh, and so that could be the coming of God in power. So he's telling them that you're at a transitional stage and, and, and God is about to, to pour out his blessings upon you and, and this is about to change. He's just lectured them on hell. And so this is kind of this upbeat, oh, by the way, you're going to see the Son of God come back in power. So straighten up. You know, that's kind of the message. I think it's interesting that right after verse 1 where he tells them that some of you standing here are going to see this, uh, God come with power, that we have this very next story. And I think this next story may be that coming in power that he's talking about. Because basically he reveals himself to Peter, James, and John. So verse 2, after six days, so this is six days later, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, 
Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say, and they were so frightened, in parentheses. Okay, I want you to imagine Peter telling the story to Mark, and this is Mark writing down Peter's story. The only way that you're going to get that little tidbit is that Peter himself told Mark about what he said when he was there. Does that make sense? Peter, Peter was nervous, didn't know what to do, and is offering to build these temples. It, th- that isn't the point, you know, of them being on the, on the mountain. And notice that Christ didn't respond to him. Uh, and Peter later understood that that wasn't what that was about. You know, he, he, it wasn't about building temples and, and staying there on the mountain and commemorating the experience. He was just revealing to Peter, James, and John that he was the Messiah. He's the coming Lord. He's, he's the Christ. He's showing it without any doubt. There is, there, there's no faith They've already expressed their faith in who he is. Now he's revealing that so that it's not about faith anymore. It's about, this is what I saw, you know? So, so now they just plain know. Then a cloud appeared and enveloped them, and a voice came from the cloud. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. So all the spiritual entities have moved on. As they came down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone. Oh, here we go again. They just had this huge spiritual experience, and they're told not to tell anyone. But what happened up there? Jesus. Jesus, yeah, but does that did that have to happen? I mean... Did we have to have this big transfiguration thing on top of a mountain in order for somebody to talk to Jesus? Jesus is God. I think if God wanted Jesus to know something, he didn't have to send Moses down to talk to him. That's not the point. It was solely to demonstrate to James and John and Peter that he was the Christ. That's all it's about. It was for them. It wasn't for Jesus and Moses and Elijah. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Because uh, yeah. they didn't say anything. They didn't deliver a message. There's, they just appear. If they said anything, then Mark isn't recording it. So it's not important. You know, so it's all about revealing himself. To these three men. There, there's a lot of speculation on how that fits into Revelation. That's true. Uh, I, I don't know. That, there's my good old answer for Revelation. I don't know. I can give you one of six interpretations when it comes to Revelation, and all of them are equally relevant. So I, I don't know. Okay. No, I, I think Revelation says nobody knows. So it, it's nothing like a book that says, okay, you're just not going to understand this book. You know, that's, that's what it says in the book. So, yeah, okay. Um, verse 9. 
As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept the matter to themselves, and they started discussing what rising from the dead means. So they didn't really get that he was going to be the sacrifice, that he had to die to pay the price for their sins. They were still seeing him as this triumphant Messiah that was going to lead the people, the, the Jewish nation, to world dominion, which is how it was taught in the synagogues. And they were basically keying into all of the Old Testament verses talking about the second coming. And so they didn't really understand what Christ is trying to accomplish even here. And so they're, they're, they understand he's the Messiah, but now they've got to understand exactly what he's doing. And they're still trying to figure that out. So he's going to die and come back from the dead? What do you mean, die and come back from the dead? Three days. What? 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 Wait, come back on that? You know, Peter, Peter is real good about jumping in there and asking questions. To be fair, it is speculated that Peter is the eldest of the 12 apostles, and it is part of Jewish tradition in a family that the older kid does all the talking for everyone else. And so the disciples will all get by themselves without Jesus, and they'll go, and, you know, and uh, the, the disciples that you don't normally hear about, you know, they'll you'll go, Peter, Peter, what's going on with this thing that Jesus said? Could you, could you like ask him about that? And so then Peter goes up and makes a fool of himself asking the question. And then Christ goes, Peter, Peter, you're so simple. You know, Peter was probably just delivering the message for the crowd. You know, so yeah, I'd, I'd give him a little more credit. As a teacher, when I was teaching, I would ask stupid questions that I knew the answer to just to get my students thinking about the answer. Does that make sense? I think some of that's happening with Peter. Maybe, maybe he's asking a question that he kind of already gets, but he knows that Matthew doesn't. You know? Okay. And they asked him, why do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Okay, where did that come from? So they just saw Elijah and Moses up on the hill. And so they came down and they were told not to discuss it. And then the first thing they ask him is, what's that? What's with Elijah? See, they're trying to figure out what they just saw. Why does Eli what do you mean Elijah comes first? He just appeared and he disappeared. What, what's going on? Well, about time Kenny showed up. Yes, Kenny is entering the room right now, ladies and gentlemen. He, is, he has arrived late. And I'm recording this, and he's brought me snacks, which makes it better. <laughs> okay. I, I, I don't want them, Kenny. Thank you. I've already had my plate. All right. We are on uh, verse 11. And they asked him, why do the teachers of law say that Elijah must come first? And Jesus replied, to be sure, Elijah does come first and restores all things. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? Because he does. Because he is. And I tell you, Elijah has come. And they have done to him everything they wish, just as it was written about him. So here's, here's Peter, James, and John. And they said, Elijah has come. And they just walked off the mountain. And they just saw Elijah up on the mountain. 
And you're going, okay, yeah, he was there, but he didn't say nothing to us. And then he disappeared in that cloud after God talked and all. So what does that mean, Elijah has come? What, is that, was this the prophecy? Did we just see the prophecy? Is that what it is? Or, or does that mean something else? Poor Peter, James, and John. They're slowly getting it. Um, what, is, what is Christ actually talking about? Is he talking about Elijah? No, Lester said under his breath where the microphone can't hear it. What is it talking about, Lester? Uh, it's John the Baptist, I think. Yeah. Uh, to be sure, Elijah does not come first and restore us all things. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? But I tell you, Elijah has come. And they have done to him everything they wish, just as it is written about him. And uh, John the Baptist is actually a type of, well, maybe Elijah is a type of John the Baptist. I'm not sure which way this goes. They, uh, there are repetitions of stories in Scripture. And in Old Testament, we'll have a story that illustrates something that happens in the New Testament. The Old Testament reveals the New Testament. So when Elijah, in, 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 back in the day, uh, is prophesying, he is, uh, a t he suffers under the hands of a very weak ruler named Ahab. And Ahab has a consort who he has a questionable relationship with named Jezebel. And Jezebel does not like Elijah because Elijah keeps accusing her of being uh, sexually impure, which of course she is, which makes her even madder. Sometimes the truth hurts. And so Elijah, you know, ultimately suffers. Uh, we won't go into the whole story of Elijah. But now we have John the Baptist, who falls into the hands of Herod, who is sitting on the same throne as Ahab did. And he has a consort named Herodias, who is his sister-in-law, whom he evidently illegally married somehow. I'm assuming that his brother is still alive somewhere. And Herodias is enjoying her newfound power as queen in name, or queen in fact, you know, rather than in name. And she's the one that's angry at John the Baptist because he's calling her out for being sexually impure. Does that sound familiar? You know, it's the same little three-sided relationship that Elijah had going. Elijah is prophesying repentance. So is John. John is saying repent and be rebaptized be re into your own faith and, and, and follow God and not man. And he's preaching this, this uh, get back to the basics kind of uh, you know, a religion. And um, he is the one that's paving the way for Christ. So when it says that this forerunner is coming forward, they weren't really referring to Elijah, they are referring to John the Baptist. And, he's, and basically Christ is saying, you know, John the Baptist has come and they just chopped his head off and it's all, you know, that's all done. Weren't you paying attention, Peter, James, and John? I'm making Christ a lot more sassy than he probably was. <laughs> Okay, so after all of this putting James and John in their place, 
we go to a healing in verse 14. So let's look at 14 through 32. When they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. Oh, there he is. We've been looking everywhere. Finally, he'll be at my leprosy. What are you arguing with them about? He asked his remaining nine disciples who were hanging around at the bottom of the mountain. A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought my son who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. Oh, unbelieving generation, Jesus replied. There we go with the, with the condemnations again. How long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? <sighs> Bring the boy to me. Okay, I added that sigh part, but I'm pretty sure it was there. So they brought him. When the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It has often thrown him into the fire or water to kill him. And if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for him who believes. Oh my, there's a condition on it, it seems. Immediately, the boy's father, who was very wise, exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. Isn't that contradictory? That feels contradictory to me. Doesn't that seem contradictory? I'll finish the passage. When Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the evil spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet and he stood up. After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, Why couldn't we drive it out? And he replied, This kind can come out only with prayer. They left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. He said to them, The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it because he's been really pointed about every, all of his answers lately. They're tired of being rebuked, I guess. Okay, there is a lot in this passage. <clears throat> we have a healing of a boy who is possessed of an evil spirit and the description of the symptoms of the evil spirit is that he falls to the ground, he foams at the mouth, he gnashes his teeth, and he becomes rigid. Wow, what does that sound like? That's a classic grand mal seizure. This is epilepsy. It sounds like epilepsy. 
Do you have epilepsy? Ron, have you had a ground mall seizure and foamed at the mouth and become rigid? And no, that's the, that's a symptom. Okay. <clears throat> it's a relatively common ailment. Every culture knows about epilepsy. Lots of people interpreting this want to say, oh, no, this wasn't a demon possession. This was this illness. <clears throat> and, and, you know, Christ said, get up. And, oh, he got up and then he was better. And so people said he was healed and they denied the miracle because it sounds similar. But it doesn't say he was ill. And, and when people are ill, the, the, the scripture lays that out and it, it defines it as being ill. This is very specific about a demon and the demon comes out of the boy when Christ casts it out. This is demon possession. This is not epilepsy. Yes. Uh, it's a demon that looks like epilepsy. You know? Uh, well, yeah, there's no question. Uh, I think it's also interesting as far as we're on the demon thing they, the, the disciples ask him, how come we couldn't cast him out? And he says, this kind can come out only with prayer. And there are some uh, interpretations of scripture where it says prayer and fasting. And I believe in one of the other books, it, huh? Yeah, King James says prayer and fasting. And uh, this is the NIV, and I think there is some vagueness in the Greek as to what that meant. So it kind of depends. Uh, however, I don't know that it means... I don't think it's significant to the story. Uh, I think the takeaway is that there are different kinds of demons, right? This kind has to come out with prayer and fasting, if you're in King James. Uh, so that means there are other kinds that don't. Maybe, maybe the disciple, what his point is, is the disciples were depending upon their own power, and they weren't praying, and they weren't, they were casting out the demon. They weren't asking God to cast out the demon. The power comes from God. And maybe that's why it didn't work. You know, you, you can kind of guesstimate this a lot. But basically, they had attempted a healing, and now the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, were kind of attacking them because they attempted this healing and it didn't work and it made them look bad and they, they went in for the kill when, when all this went bad. And then Christ walked into the middle of it and cleaned all that up. You know. No. You? I, I heard those stories. Uh, so tell me. What's the story? This one girl. Open the door. This one girl was asked, she was, she's been watching the devil for a while. Actually, she was in the choir singing. Uh huh. And uh, they came down for prayer. She came up for prayer. And as soon as I laid her hands on her, she went. And so crazy screaming. Went out of the church. I went back and got her, brought her back to the church. She was screaming, uh, hitting people. We left probably about 10 o'clock. And we left 
just about giving God the credit for what they're trying to do. Maybe their focus was a little different. Uh, they left that place and passed through Galilee. I'm in verse 30. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. He's hiding from the crowds. They're sneaking around. It's hard for me to picture Christ sneaking around and hiding from people. You know, it seems like God would be a little more Kind, but he's not here just to heal everybody everywhere. He's he's here for a purpose, and that's to to redeem us. It's not about our physical bodies; it's about our spiritual bodies. And so he knows it's the end game. He knows it's coming. I'm using Marvel references in this this lesson, Kenny. I know you missed that part before. Okay, yeah. And so because this is where it all turns around, and he starts going toward Jerusalem, and it stops being about preaching to the Galilee, he's reached the masses, you know. Now it's about making sure his disciples have a clue before we, we, it all starts coming down to a head, you know. And so he wants them kind of, and still they're, they're kind of reeling and not quite understanding what's going on until it's all over, which was, you know, and then they piece it together. Yeah, while they're, while they're sitting in the upper room waiting on the Holy Spirit, then Peter's going, oh, wait, you know, he's, he, he'll remember what Christ told him last year that makes sense and it all fits together. And eventually, I think they do. Hmm? Walking in the nose. Yes. So he said to them, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant. They're still having, you try, picturing him as the great conqueror. And they were afraid to ask him about it, which is so funny. Okay. There's a direct quote right there, and it's funny that they will kill him, and after three days, it'll, you know, it's made, he, I mean, how can you spell it out plainer? And, <laughs> but yeah, it's pretty like, straightforward. They yeah, just don't know how to fit it in their narrative. Yeah, you know? uh huh. Yeah. Isn't that the way we all deal with the truth? The truth makes sense as long as it fits into my already preconceived notion of the world. And if your preconceived notion of the world isn't accurate, then the truth doesn't fit, so it must be a lie, right? So if you really want to lie to somebody, you start with little lies, and you shift their whole world off a little bit. Then you drop the big one on them, and they believe it. See, so there's the trick to being a good liar. That was for free for those of you listening in on the Internet. Tune in to Crossroads and learn how to lie. <laughs> Verse 33. Yeah, it's the least of the commandments, isn't it? Uh, hey, I think it's a skill. 
They came to Capernaum. So they're, 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 yeah, they're traveling. When he was in the house, he asked them, what are you arguing about on the road? So, so here we go, picking on the poor disciples again. And Mark is showing us the development of the disciples in this book, in, in this chapter. What are we arguing about on the road? So Christ, you know, was pretending not to be listening. He already knows what they were arguing about, so we're going to address it. But they kept quiet because on the way they'd argue about who was the greatest. I used to do that with my brothers. You know, I'm, I'm bigger than you. When we all grow up, I'm going to be richer than you are, and then you're going to work for me because you're a little toady and you're, you're going to, you know. Uh, I think that's kind of a natural thing. And they're all expecting Christ to be the great messianic ruler and take, be, beat the Romans. That's what they're all expecting. Well, when he becomes the messianic ruler, what does that make them? They're going to be the governors of the earth, right? You know, they're all going to have their own kingdoms. Well, which one's going to get Jerusalem? Well, should, would it be Peter? Well, it shouldn't be Peter. I think, you know, well, Peter is the boss. He should have Jerusalem, don't you think? And so they're arguing. They're, they're dividing up the world between them before the Great Revolution, you know. And so they, they, they completely don't understand what it's all about, and they're, and they're one-upping each other. They're, it's, it's like a field house here with these, these disciples. I think uh, this is interesting here because maybe that's why they cut cast the demon out of the guy, because they're trying to find out who the greatest. Who, who oh, that's I, an interesting story. I could cast a neighbor out. No, you can, I can do it, you know. They're trying to find who the greatest. This is going back to what God was trying to tell us. I like that interpretation, like Lester. That, yeah. I don't think there's anything to absolutely prove that interpretation, no. but it's, it's consistent with the verses we've got here. So I'm, I'm good with that. Huh. Sitting down, Jesus called the 12, this is verse 35, and said, so he puts everybody around, if anyone wants to be first, he must be the very last and the servant of all. Now I can tell you now, that's not any fun. He took a little child and had them stand among them, because they were staying in somebody's house, and there are kids in the house. Taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. So you don't want to try to lord it over the other disciples. You want to be a servant. And you want to serve the weakest. Huh. Huh? Well, I'm just thinking of a whole host of preachers I've known who have never read that verse. <laughs> and I'm not talking about mine. Brother Sanders, we all love you. And I want you to know that that was not about you. That was directed to my long and speckled past. Um... Christians need to serve. We're called into service. There is nothing about us that makes us important. Compared to God, we are nothing. Compared to each other, okay, if I'm nothing and you're nothing, if we compare each other, what are we? We're both nothing, you know. The only time I can see myself as being better than you is when I cut God out of the picture, 
Does that make sense? So as long as we are serving God, we are not trying to lord it over somebody else. It's not about a power struggle. I hope the board is listening to this message. That's what I... Oh, never mind. I'm sorry, I didn't say it out loud. Um, Liz, you can... <laughs> Liz, you can strike that out. Please strike that out. I'm not going to not talk about board members. Okay. <coughs> Verse. I, you think so? I should re-record. I really should. Yeah, this, this isn't going well today. Uh, 38. Teacher, said John, we saw a man driving out demons in your name. And we told him to stop because he was not one of us. Wow, they really think they're an exclusive club. That guy isn't going to be one of the people that are going to be the new governors of the earth when the Messiah takes over. No, it's going to be us 12. We better stop him from doing our thing. Oh, wow. Do not stop him, Jesus said. No one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me. If God, God's performing the miracle, it's not him. So if this guy is, is calling upon God and praying and God's performing miracles, then, gee, God must be in it. Huh. Uh, for whoever is not against me is for me. That's not quite the cliche, is it? I tell you the truth, anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name because you belong to Christ will certainly not lose his reward. You know, in all of those war movies I've watched, when, you know, the, the bad guy stands up as he's about to attack the castle, he says, if you're not with me, you're against me. Right? You know? Uh, you either follow him or we're going to kill you because you have to choose a side. Well, that's exclusionary. You, you know, it's, it's, it's kicking people out. You have to be with me or I'm going to fight you. Christ says, if you're not against me, then you're with me. It's exclusionary. I mean, it's inclusive, excuse me. So it's not just the 12 disciples. If, if God's working through other people, then God's working through other people, and that must be right. If, if there are miracles happening in God's name, then how can you condemn that? You know, when the Pharisees say you're casting out demons using the power of Satan, Christ says, well, how does that work? You know, does, does Satan want to cast demons out? Satan isn't casting demons out. Satan wants demons in. I think you're confused about this Satan thing. You know, so that has implications all over the place. So, so we're in a denomination here, which is Assembly of God. And we have a doctrine of belief that all Assembly of God churches follow. It is not the same doctrine of belief as the church that I was raised in, which is Southern Baptist. There are some subtle and interesting differences. It is not the same doctrine of belief as Methodists. Oh my goodness. And oh, those Calvinists. My goodness, the Calvinists. Are they Christians? 
Does God speak in their churches? I can tell you for certain that he does. I've been, I've been there, Lester. If God is speaking in their churches, then God is in their churches. So they're legitimate Christians, right? I think if you condemn a church for not being Christian, there has to be absolutely no evidence of Christ working in that church. I think that's the implication of this verse, right? Well, let's, we would have to, there, there are some cults that I have some issues with. Their doctrine makes me really uncomfortable. Is God working in their church? There are knotted eyebrows all around the room. Where it, it's, it's, it's a tricky question. Yes. He may not believe what that dude is up there saying, mm-hmm. but in an old way, he might be saved. It's a God's way of answering. Hmm. That's, that's the question. I mean, some, some of them say, oh, he's archangel. You know, Michael. So, no. Uh, and some others say, oh, he's the only son of God who had physical sex. And they're very dangerous. Very dangerous doctrines. He became God. Yeah, because he wasn't God when he was born, but he became God. And you can become a God. So I, you got to. Who is Christ? Is it truthful what this book says? Yes, and I think I think the matters of faith and whether or not people are Christian boils down to an individual basis and has less to do with. uh, uh, denominations as it does with individuals. For instance, when I was in college, uh, I I went to church every Sunday, but it was two years before I went to the same church twice. I kind of went in my own cross-denominational study and because uh, there were buses that pulled up in front of my dorm every Sunday, and I thought it was fun to just jump on a different bus every, <laughs> every Sunday. Where is this one going to go? And there would be six others around me going, oh, wait, are you serving a good lunch? You know, because that, that would happen with the students. And, uh, yeah, we, we basically chased spaghetti all over, you know, Austin <laughs> when I was in college. But I visited churches that I was never exposed to. My father was a minister, so we never left our own church. I barely saw churches that we weren't serving in, you know. And, uh, no, suddenly I'm going to all these other churches, and I'm visiting Catholics, and I'm visiting Mormons, and I'm visiting, you know, I, I I, I think I went everywhere. And I learned lots about the, 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 the Protestant world in Texas, at least. And I met a priest, a Catholic priest, at one of those luncheons for students after the service. And I said, okay, you know, and he's talking to me about Christianity. And I said, well, I am a Christian. I accepted Christ when I was 13. And I said to the priest, and I said, have you made a personal uh, commitment of your life to Jesus Christ and asked Jesus Christ into your heart as your Savior? And he said, yes. And I said, so there was a moment, what they call the epiphany, and he goes, oh yes. 
And, and you study scripture and you, 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 you read the Bible and you follow what God reveals to you through the Bible? Oh, yes, of course. And, and, and I went down the list of what it is to be a born-again Christian, and he answered yes the whole time. Sometimes he didn't use exactly the same vocabulary that I did. But this was absolutely, without any doubt in my mind, a born-again, on-fire Catholic priest. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Uh, I I have a lot of respect for Catholics. The thing is, you know, they do have this thing about Marian saints, and it does smack of idolatry, which they will deny. And uh, you know, I think they've had problems in the past, which they don't deny and have fixed it because the church is so old. They've you know, they, of course, have had problems, which they've had to correct from. Uh, I, I, there are a lot of things that I disagree with, but I'm not going to condemn all Catholics. And I think there are a lot of Catholics that are not born-again Christians that think they are because they attend church once a year, and that seems to be traditionally okay with them and their denomination. And that's a problem. Sure. Yeah, and then we're all good. The whole confession thing, I think, is questionable. Uh, but I, that's not to say that there aren't born again Catholics. It's you know, I agree. I agree. I think it, it, it's about an individual relationship with God. And I am, I am running out of time. Uh, oh, thank you, Ron, for emphasizing that. Um, all right, I've got one more passage in our fifty verses that we are sprinting through here. Uh, And if anyone causes one of these little ones, I guess he's pulled the kid back in, who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to be thrown into the sea with a large millstone tied around his neck. If your hands causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell. Where their worm dies does... Where their worm does not die and the fire is quenched, which is a quote, I think, from Jeremiah. Everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with each other. Oh my goodness, what a loaded passage. End on. All right, guys, I confess. I have to comment on this. Uh, I confess that... um, I've probably sinned several times this week. <laughs> I have. I, I, I had to do some praying last night just to kind of settle accounts with God because it had been a big day. Uh, you know? Uh, yeah? Really? You're not perfect? Yeah. Shouldn't that be the way it works? I think that should be the way it works. I, uh... 
I sin. Now, here, now this seems to be saying that uh, it is better for me to, to cut parts of my body off and avoid sinning. And if, if we were taking this literally, shouldn't there be a whole bunch of amputees in our church? Shouldn't we be blind, Lester? We should both be blind, I'm thinking. Oh my, yeah, it would put a whole new you, you swing on the healing service, wouldn't it? Yeah. <laughs> wow. Um, Christ is speaking, I hope, in hyperbole here. It is an exaggeration. And he's also speaking poetically. He's not exactly, quote, he quotes Jeremiah, but he does this repetition thing, which is a, a kind of a Jewish teacher, rabbi, um, uh, poetic bent. It's kind of, he's preaching. And so he's emphasizing his point by making it really exaggerated. And in some versions of this, there's, a, there's more repetition. There are some manuscripts which they argue are older than the earlier ones which don't have it, which means that it was put in later. That after each mention of hell, you have a repetition of this refrain from Jeremiah that describes hell. So it would read, It is better for you to enter life maimed with two hands to go into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And if your foot causes you to sin and is crippled two feet and thrown into hell where the worm does not, you know, it's like that. <coughs> it's kind of a, it's a, it's a poetic, hyperbole, almost a song for the purpose of emphasis. Christ wants us to understand that sinning is really bad. <laughs> And you should quit. And, and, that's, and that's kind of the point of this. I don't think he is calling for his disciples to chop their hands off. Except for maybe Judas. Because that, that might have worked out better. Because eventually your sins catch up with you. Yeah, just the little finger. Yeah, just start, with a, start one knuckle at a time and work your way up. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, back to those healing services again. That's creepy. For once, it wasn't me being creepy, Kenny. <laughs> okay, uh, that is the end of chapter 9, and we will look at chapter 10 next time, which begins with divorce. Uh, implications for our times. All right, this is Evan signing off.